Well, today the jury heard the last of argument and received their jury instructions in the Arbery case trial in which defendants Greg McMichael, Travis McMichael, and Roddy Bryan are each facing a count of malice murder. Four counts of felony murder and then the four predicate felony counts two for aggravated assault and two for false imprisonment. In the interest of keeping our coverage somewhat orderly, I'm going to address each of the day's major events, the closing rebuttal of Assistant District Attorney Linda Danikoski and the reading of the instructions to the jury by Judge Timothy Walmsley separately. I covered the Danikoski rebuttal in my previous piece of content, so here I'll cover Judge Walmsley's instruction of the jury. Well, more accurately, I'll cover the small portion of that instruction. That's the part that really matters here. The instruction on citizen's arrest under statute 17460, grounds for arrest. I'll link that statute in the text version of today's content. And that instruction on the citizen's arrest was an exercise in patent professional failure of duty on the part of Judge Walmsley. Before I jump into that, I do want to briefly mention an exceptional opportunity for your consideration. Perhaps once every 12 or 18 months, we do one of our full-day Law of Self-Defense Advanced Self-Defense Law classes. This is a full-day class that's, frankly, the equivalent of a law school seminar on self-defense law. It's applicable to all 50 states, taught in my usual plain English style without any confusing legalese. And this class is taught live by me, streamed to you at your computer using Zoom, and there's plenty of opportunity for live Q&A with me during the class. Because we allow for Q&A, however, we have to sharply limit the number of seats available, so on the rare occasions when we do one of our live online advanced self-defense law classes, they invariably fill up almost immediately after we announce the date, and I'm announcing the date right now. It's taking place on Saturday, January 8th. 2022. If you've ever wanted a true mastery of the law of self-defense, here's the best, really among the only opportunities to grab that expertise with both hands. But again, seats are already going fast since we first announced this law of self-defense advanced self-defense law class just yesterday. So if you're at all interested, I urge you to point your browser promptly to lawofselfdefense.com slash advanced and grab your seat today. Okay, folks, so let's get back into this jury instruction issue. This entire case essentially hinges on the question of the underlying citizen's arrest. If the effort to make a citizen's arrest of Ahmad Arbery was lawful, then everything that follows was likely also lawful. Conversely, if the effort to make a citizen's arrest of Arbery was unlawful, then everything that follows was also likely unlawful. And both sides fully understand this. In particular, Assistant DA Linda Dunikowski is fully aware that if she loses the jury on the question of citizen's arrest, she loses the trial entirely. Naturally, then, it's in her interest to have the citizen's arrest statute interpreted as narrowly as possible. And there's definitely room for interpretation in the statute that was first made law back around the Civil War and makes use of legal terms of art that likely don't mean today what they might have meant back in the day. Certainly, nobody drafting a citizen's arrest statute today would construct it as this one is constructed. The amount of ambiguity in the statute is really remarkable, if only because of the statute's brevity. It's only two sentences long. Those two sentences are, quote, a private person may arrest an offender if the offense is committed in his presence or within his immediate knowledge. If the offense is a felony and the offender is escaping or attempting to escape, a private person may arrest him upon reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion, close quote. Now, my own reading of that statute, applying normal rules of statutory construction, is that the two sentences present two different scenarios for a citizen's arrest. 
The second sentence refers explicitly to a felony scenario and sets out certain requirements for that scenario that differ from the requirements set out in the first sentence. My reading is that the first sentence is therefore contemplating the alternative criminal scenario, the non-felony, the misdemeanor. So if the citizen's arrest is being made for a serious offense like murder, the person making the arrest is required to have reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion, which Judge Walmsley is interpreting as probable cause. Fair enough. If the citizen's arrest is being made merely for a misdemeanor, however, then probable cause is not enough. After all, an arrest is a real burden on a person's personal liberty and ought not be done lightly. Before we'll allow a citizen's arrest for a relatively minor crime, imagine shoplifting, for example, will require more than just probable cause, will require that the offense was committed in the presence of the person making the arrest or that they have immediate knowledge of the offense. Perhaps they observed it from a distance, for example. So my reading of the citizen's arrest statute is that the first sentence refers to arrests premised on a misdemeanor offense, and the second sentence refers to arrests premised on a felony offense. Assistant DA Denikowski urges a different reading of the statute. She argues that the first sentence is supposed to apply to all citizens' arrests, whether for misdemeanor or felony offenses, such that any citizen's arrest requires that the offense be committed in the presence of or with the immediate knowledge of the person making the arrest. The second sentence then, according to Donikowski, adds additional conditions, the probable cause requirement that must be met in the case of felony arrests. But this construction makes no sense to me, if only from a public policy perspective. Why? Because it makes it easier to make a citizen's arrest, to constrain a person's liberty, if they've merely committed a misdemeanor like shoplifting, than if they've committed a heinous felony like murder. That doesn't make sense to me. I mean, we're adding additional conditions, this probable cause condition, for the felony. In addition, if we're supposed to read in the presence immediate knowledge into the second sentence, the felony sentence, then the probable cause language in the second sentence serves no purpose. If the offense occurred in your presence or with your immediate knowledge, then you have a degree of certainty that's vastly greater than mere probable cause. You know for certain that the offense happened. Probable cause is a mere probability that it happened. That's less than certainty. It's like saying that before you can make any arrest, you have to be 100% certain of the offense. But before you can make a felony arrest, you also have to be 51 certain. That makes no sense. It's an additional requirement that would never apply. And it's a basic principle of statutory interpretation that the legislature didn't put in substantial language that has no actual purpose. There must be a purpose, and if there is a purpose to the probable cause, it has to be applying in circumstances where immediate presence or rather presence or immediate knowledge is not required. So, as you might expect, I favor my reading of the Georgia Citizens Arrest Statute over the reading that Assistant DA Dunikowski urges. In any case, however, at the end of the day, the question of how this law is to be applied in this criminal trial is not up to me, and it's not up to Assistant DA Dunikowski. And most definitely of all, it's absolutely not up to the jury, whose job is to be the finder of fact to work through ambiguity of evidence, not to work through ambiguity of law. The person in charge of the law in a trial is the judge. In this case, Judge Timothy Walmsley. It's his duty to decide how the law is to be applied to the facts as the jury determines those facts to be proven or not proven. And this Judge Walmsley abjectly failed to do. And in a trial with three defendants looking at life in prison, that's a contemptible professional failure. 
Remember, the key issue is whether the two sentences in the citizen's arrest statute are intended to be melded together so that both apply to all arrests or whether the conditions of the first sentence refer to misdemeanor arrest and the conditions of the second sentence refer to felony arrest. That's the fundamental issue that Judge Walmsley needed to resolve, and he did not. In the text version of today's content, I'll include a focus clip of him giving the citizen's arrest jury instruction so you can see it for yourself. But all he really did was read the statutory sentences. Quote, the private person may arrest an offender if the offense is committed in his presence or within his immediate knowledge. If the offense is a felony and the offender is escaping or attempting to escape, a private person may arrest him upon reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion. Close quote. That's it. I mean, he talked about other issues of citizen's arrest, but he did nothing to clarify that statutory language. At no point does the judge tell the jury whether they are to treat the two statutory sentences as both applying in all arrests or whether the separate felony conditions are to be independently applied in the case of an arrest predicated on a felony offense. So with all the legal experts in that courtroom, three attorneys for the state, apparently six attorneys for the defense, plus Judge Walmsley, we're going to leave the fate of these three defendants to however the jury decides to interpret an ambiguous statute that appears to befuddle even the experts. It's ridiculous. It was the duty of Judge Walmsley to decisively construct a non-ambiguous jury instruction from this ambiguous statute. And sure, maybe a later appellate court would decide he'd done it wrong and reverse him. But at least he'd have done it, which is his duty. I would also note that had Judge Walmsley done his duty and resolved the ambiguity of this statute, there's only one possible legally sound outcome, that the two sentences not be conflated, but rather be treated separately. Why is that? Because under the doctrine of lenity, when a criminal statute is ambiguous, that ambiguity is always to be resolved in the favor of the defendant, never in the favor of the state. It's the government that drafted that statute and passed it into law, not the defendant. If they left in ambiguity, that's on the government, not the defendant. In short, Judge Walmsley dropping the ball on this all important citizens arrest jury instruction simply makes this entire trial little better than a train wreck. And any guilty verdict this jury delivers is inevitably tainted by the failure to provide the jury with clear and unambiguous instructions on the key legal issue in the case, the issue that determines guilt or acquittal for these three men on charges that would put them in prison for the rest of their lives. It's contemptible. In any case, I do have the entirety of the reading of the jury instruction by the judge to the jury embedded in the text version of today's content. Uh, other than the bungled citizen's arrest jury instruction, which of course really is everything, but everything else in the instructions was boringly common. Okay, folks, that's all I have for you on this topic today. Until next time, remember, if you carry a gun so you're hard to kill, that's why I carry a gun so I'm hard to kill, so my family is hard to kill, then you also owe it to yourself and your family to make sure you know the law so you're hard to convict. Until next time, oh, we are running a verdict watch uh, fixed blog post, pinned blog post, I guess they call it, over at LegalInsurrection.com. I am away for the next couple days, so Legal Insurrection staff and the professor himself, uh, Jacobson, will be managing that verdict watch page. Um, I'm sure they'll do an awesome job, but if you want quick access to breaking news on any verdict, that's the place to be, LegalInsurrection.com. All right, folks. Until next time, I remain attorney Andrew Branker for Law of Self-Defense. Stay safe.